listening to Now I've Heard Everything, conversations with the icons of our time. People took the female eunuch to be telling them to go out and be sexually active. The female eunuch was bought a lot. I don't know that it was read a lot. I think it was a book you had to have on the bookshelf. You didn't have to actually know what it said. Feminist author and activist Jermaine Greer. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Buell Thompson. Back in the early 1970s, many women had two books on their bookshelf, The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan and The Female Eunuch by Germaine Greer. Now, that 1970 book was the then 31-year-old's first book, and almost overnight it turned her into an internationally known celebrity and a leader in the feminist movement. Greer's ideas about femininity, male-female relationships and marriage and sex— well, they redefined those terms for millions of readers worldwide. In the years that followed, Greer became a very prolific writer of books and essays. In fact, many of those essays were collected in a 1987 book that she called The Mad Woman's Underclothes. And that's when I had the chance to meet and have a few minutes with this iconic figure. So here now from 1987, Germaine Greer. Where in heaven's name does the title of your book come from? It comes from my mother, who used to say whenever I made a terrible mess of something that it was all over the place, like a mad woman's underclothes. <laughs> but speaking on behalf of the mad woman, let me tell you that to the mad woman it makes some sort of sense. How have you changed over the last two decades? I've got older. That's it. That's the sum, I think, of what's happened. I've read reviews, though, of your book that say that, oh, it shows all the subtle nuances of how she's changed and how this viewpoint has solidified and that has, you know, moved this, this way or that. Are you saying you really haven't changed? Well, it depends what you think people mean when they talk about change. I was accused of doing a volte face, of doing a U-turn, of abandoning the convictions of my youth, which was like being told that I'd had a facelift when I hadn't. And the only way to, pr to prove that it isn't true is to produce the photos and say, look here, I was like this, and I was like this, and I was like this. And that's why we, haven't, we have not changed a comma. We have not altered any spellings. Everything in there is documentary as it was first published, or rather, not first published, as it was first written. Wherever possible, we used my typescripts. But a lot of the things that we sent from the third world, from Vietnam or... Um, India, there is no surviving typescript. Not quite because I dictated them straight into the telex, but it got a bit like that from time to time. Many of your essays have never been published before. Not many, some. I've actually had a, a fairly good trot with my editors, actually. One of the things, I used to have a strategy, you see, with the Sunday Times. I knew they didn't like most of what I did, so I used to file copy very late and they'd be holding the space, and they wouldn't have time to sub it. We don't have as much trouble from subbing as you do in America, because our editing is generally more passive. We do not suffer the curse of the rewrite man, who puts everything into the newspaper's dialect, you know, with the clichés that they prefer, in contradistinction to the ones that you have chosen. We don't have that problem in England, but some of the things I was saying were too strong for the times. And so I used to deliberately file. I would telex the copy on Saturday, and they would just have to shove it straight into the paper. They'd have no choice. Is there anything at all about the 1987 version of Germaine Greer that would have 
surprised or even shocked the 1970 version? No, I don't think so. I, I think there are rites of passage in a woman's life that are not marked in our society, and they probably should be. One is the menarche the entry upon menstruation, which I think we ought to mark in a way that little girls feel they've accomplished something and haven't just acquired a massive problem. Then there's uh, loss of virginity or becoming nubile or whatever, the next one is. Then there's menopause, I suppose, or and or death of parents. The death of a parent is a fantastic change. I mean, that does concentrate the mind wonderfully, when you realize that you are now the guardian of the oncoming generation, and your focus changes completely. And all of those things happen to me. I've lost all my impatience, for example, with old people, and I think I've lost a good deal of my impatience with fools. It depends what sort of fools they are. Some people might describe that as a mellowing. Well, why not, for God's sake? I mean, it would be dreadful if we didn't mellow. I'm, I hope I'm mellowing. I hope also, though, I haven't lost my sense of outrage. I don't think I have. The one thing that I, that I brought in this morning, just by chance, this morning, I happened to be thumbing through a book that had arrived in the mail yesterday. It's a fundamentalist Christian book, and it quotes you. <laughs> and I want to see if it quotes you accurately. It says in, it, there's there's a... It says, 20 years ago, Time magazine pictured feminists burning bras, the women's liberation movement, etc., etc., etc. A few other switches have also made headlines. In 1970, Germaine Greer's The Female Eunuch advocated that women never marry or have children and that they engage freely in sexual activity. Recently, she published a book defending the traditional family and attacking promiscuity. <laughs> well, are they quote? Do you call that a quote? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, maybe. Let's, let's put it so that's how they've characterized what you have said. Is that, uh, is that accurate? Well, the devil can cite scripture to his purpose. Uh, the, what interests me is that people took the female eunuch to be telling them to go out and be sexually active. It criticized marriage, therefore they thought it told them never to marry. Americans think all literature is how-to literature. You know, What do you want me to do now? Tell me what to do. Don't make me read the book. Don't make me think. Just tell me what is it you want us to do. I think the female eunuch was bought a lot. In fact, we know it was. I don't know that it was read a lot. I think it was a book you had to have on the bookshelf. You didn't have to actually know what it said. And it didn't say those things. I mean, I still criticize the institution of marriage. But if you look at the way I do it, I criticize it because of its exclusivity, because the couple is such a small and claustrophobic unit, because it carries the seeds of its own destruction. There is no buttress there to keep the structure standing long enough to bring the children to maturity. And there is no mediator between parents and children. There's no way that people can cope with each other's infidelities and so on. The breeding couple need to be sustained. And also, a mother should not be punished for having a child. The description I make of motherhood in The Female Eunuch is exactly the same description as I make in Sex and Destiny, except it's from the other point of view. Sex and Destiny is about how you sustain families, and The Female Eunuch is why the coupledom way of doing it can only drive women crazy. And people can't see that there is a consistency there. It must be very frustrating to you as, as a writer, as someone who's trying to make a point when people miss your point entirely and, and, as you say, just keep the book on the shelf but never read it? No. I'm, I think I'm extraordinarily lucky in that I'm allowed to write. I'm kept alive by my writing. I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. I'm one of the few workers who has utter bargaining power. 
I can say no, no, no until they make me an offer I can't refuse. There are not very many people who can do that. Um, it's such a privilege to have access to the most enormous information machine ever conceived on the face of the planet. I would have to be a raving fascist to be irritated that people don't necessarily take my point. I'm, I don't expect them to. When people say to me, I'm so sorry I haven't read your books, or book, or whatever, I always say, why should you? Why should you? Why should you unless you're interested? Unless it, you think it can serve your purpose. Is it important to you that your books become commercial successes? Only because I feel embarrassed um, if they're not. Because I generally command a fairly high advance. And I have to, because I pay British taxes. There's no way I could survive if I didn't. I would like to be like John Updike and never write for an advance at all. I'm told that's what he does. He sells the finished book to his publisher, so he's never indebted. And I'm always concerned that if I've accepted the advance, the publisher should get his money back. And Sex and Destiny in the United States did very badly on, on my terms. It did extraordinarily well in Europe. But my American publishers made an act of faith in Sex and Destiny, which was not justified in the end, mainly because the book was extraordinarily irresponsibly and insanely reviewed. It was really strange. I mean, people sort of said, well, why should we take this book seriously? And promptly went on to show that they hadn't. <laughs> they hadn't even read it properly. <laughs> After this short break, a trigger warning, Jermaine Greer will be talking about sexual assault and also why she would never vote for a woman for president of the U.S. Start your day with Now I've Heard Everything. We post new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 5 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time. Subscribe now so you'll have something fresh to listen to and get your day going. Now back to my 1987 conversation with Jermaine Greer. Are you not taken seriously by as many people as you would like to be? I don't demand to be taken seriously by anybody. I mean, that's why I call myself a madwoman. It's very important for me to be able to say the things that no one else can say and to skip out of the line of fire. And I've been arguing in England lately. Well, I've, as you can see from the book, I've argued now for 20 years that the category of rape in criminal law, the separate category, is a sexist category based on sexist assumptions about the vagina and who owns it and what it's for. And I really think I do want that category abolished. And I argue in lots of ways. And lately I, I did a piece where I argued that it's not the penis that is dangerous, it's men. And beatings are worse than rapes. And the performance, I mean, it went against all the, all the uh, accepted um, hypocrisies now. I mean, even Mrs. Thatcher says, Oh, rape, that uniquely revolting and terrible crime. And then people said, you know, how does she know how a rape victim feels? And they all assumed that I'd never been raped. I was, in fact, violently raped and beaten when I was 18 years old. And I do remember that the rape was a kind of slimy anticlimax to the thundering beating and strangulation and the cruelty of being made to say things. What I remember now with the most anger is that with this man's fingers on my carotid artery, I was made to say stuff. I mean, what happened to the anatomy was... Nothing by comparison to having to actually say those words to that man. But you see, you can get my situation. I mean, here I am. I have to cross the picket lines. 
in order to try and make a point. I keep saying to uh, pro-abortionists, don't you realize the right to lifers are on the same side? How many abortions are had because women couldn't have the children that they would have had if they were not condemned to ostracism and poverty and marginality in society? How many abortions are actually forced? I want to assist people who say, are you pregnant and in trouble? We can help. What I don't want is for them to decide which help the child or the woman should avail herself of. They should offer the whole spectrum of help. We should actually be colleagues in this and agree to submerge our sectarian differences if we care about women, if we're feminists first. But you see, feminism also has become in some ways sectarian. And so I go scratching around at the carapace trying to let the soul out from inside. <laughs> the other day, Patricia Schroeder went on television and said that she was not going to run for president of the United States. And she cried. And so did Muskie, you remember? Mm-hmm. And many people have said, isn't that just like a woman? She can't get her way, so she cries. Well, the first thing that I as a feminist have to do is to treat another woman with respect. I wish she hadn't cried so hard. But do you know why I wish this? I wish it because it causes me to suspect, right down deep, that that was not a free decision. If she had actually made her own decision, the crying would have been done. I suspect that she found out that the Democratic Party would not support her, that the funds would not roll over, that she was not considered a fit candidate. In other words, that she was dumped by her brothers and cannot say so. There is something about those tears. They were too bitter. She actually sabotaged her own prepared announcement. And I think if you give it just a second more thought, you realize that the destruction of Pat Schroeder that we saw was not quite what it seemed. That night, ABC Television went and did a, a man on the street. After they had done a poll with the Washington Post, finding that nearly one-third of Americans say they would not vote for a candidate if that candidate were a woman. Flat out, regardless of the qualifications, they would not vote for that candidate. And they, ABC interviewed a very enlightened man who said, yes, I think women are very good at what they do, at being a secretary or a nurse. He said, there's a lot of pressure in being a president. True. <laughs> I think it's also true that being a president is a kind of macho role. And the way, if you look at the profile that America presents on the world stage, you look at what's going on in the Gulf. I, mean, I don't want to see a woman running that show. I really don't. I would have had difficulty if I'd been American in voting for, I'd have difficulty voting for a president, frankly. I'd have difficulty voting at all. And I would probably be uh, lying on the railway tracks outside some naval supply station or whatever, getting my legs cut off. Um, I don't think that it's a job for a woman because it's, it's a terrible job. You're the most dangerous person on earth. I don't want the most dangerous person on earth to be a woman. I don't want to see a woman leading these United States until there's been a complete social and political change here, until the United States' role in the world has stopped being one of shaking fists and bombing two and a half million people on the edge of the Mediterranean. There's no way. I don't approve of the chauvinism that said that two out of every three Americans, whether male or female, would not vote for a woman. 
Um, but I think it's important that you understand that this is still a chauvinist nation and would continue to be one even if you had a different set of genitals on the seat in the Oval Office. Today, January 29th, is Germaine Greer's 85th birthday. She divides her time between England and Australia. Now you can get a copy of The Mad Woman's Underclothes by Germaine Greer by tapping the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. We may earn an Amazon commission if you make a purchase. And while you're at heardeverything.com, you can also listen to my 2000 interview with the author of that other book that was on everybody's shelf in, 19, in the early 1970s, the author of The Feminine Mystique, Betty Friedan. I didn't set out to make a revolution at all, you know, but I certainly didn't realize I was going to start the most massive revolution of them all. And my 1992 conversation with another contemporary of theirs, Ms. Magazine founder Gloria Steinem. The genius of social justice movements, whether it's the women's movement, the black movement, the Hispanic movement, the gay movement, whatever the movement is, the genius of it comes from people letting others know that you can do it. Together we can support each other and we can make it happen. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us everywhere you listen to podcasts. And thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, you've heard of the Red Scare and the Blacklists from the 50s. Well, we'll be talking with someone who was there in the middle of it because he was a member of the Communist Party. My 1990 interview with acclaimed writer Howard Fast. In the 1930s, the Communist Party of the United States was honored to a point almost of reverence. There was almost no person of talent in the United States who was not connected with it in one way or another. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thank you.